Today on the show, we're thumping our big bodies into the sand, mm. attracting other podcasters who will then devour us, leaving scraps for our brood. <laughs> yeah. Also, we're answering your questions oh, today. Oh, right, right. Yeah, that too. Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And we are back with our third mailbag episode. Mailbag. <laughs> something, Deep something. Distrans joke, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the absolute impulse to open with another distrans joke and then yeah. checking the disappointment of then seeing that we've already done that twice <laughs> in this right. one book club series. Oh, what a letdown for myself emotionally. <laughs> but here we are. We're back with another mailbag. We are indeed. Uh, I'm excited. These always get me so amped because our listeners send such great questions yeah. and give us the space to be so weird and geeky and get into some crazy theories, which it's true. today is chock full of. So I can't wait to get into it. Right. But first, as always, we need to take care of some housekeeping. And in fact, the first bit of housekeeping is we have to give a shout out about the housekeeping. It's kind of meta. Yeah, yeah. But we had a listener named Scott Sprague who pointed out in a recent email that we should 100% be branding this housekeeping section as something to do with shout out Mapes. Oh my God. Yeah. And that's so obvious <laughs> that we somehow haven't done it across almost 100 episodes. <laughs> yeah. Embarrassing. Yep. <laughs> so without further ado, hey, Abu. Yes. Let's, uh, Make shout out Mapes proud and handle our uh -huh. housekeeping for today's episode. Indeed. God damn it. That's so good. How <laughs> nearly a hundred episodes. We'd never thought of it's that. Okay. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> as long as we get it before a hundred. That's what they always say, right? <laughs> Third time's the charm. Right. But a hundred, the hundredth time, that's embarrassing. Right, right. Presidents get a hundred days. Podcasters <laughs> get a hundred episodes. So we're good. We're Gucci. We are Gucci indeed. Today's episode <laughs> will be spoiler-free up through the pages we've covered so far in Children of Dune. That's right. So as long as you're caught up with the reading, you're good to go. Indeed. Now, a reminder that the best way to support this show is to become a patron at patreon.com slash We've got some solid benefits for you if you sign up. You get ad-free episodes. Cool. You get access to these book club episodes months before they're released on the public feed. <laughs> And you get stuff the public never gets to hear. Bloopers, cut content, bonus clips, mm -hmm. all of that exclusive to the Patreon feed. Dang. And of course, a huge shout out to our Kwisatz Haderach level patrons, Case Aiken and Matthew Good. Gents, we hope our big thumping bodies have attracted you <laughs> because we're so ready to be devoured by your generosity. <laughs> 
all of this isn't going to make sense until people hear the episode. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. We're really uh, putting the cart before the horse on that joke, but it'll make sense in hindsight. It's fine. Listen to the episode yeah. again. It'll be fun. It'll be like, dude, you really want to listen to this episode twice because then you'll get all the references. <laughs> well, absolutely, guys. Thank you so much. Also, thank you, Matthew, for an incredible email for uh, today's episode. Top tier stuff. Yes. Consider checking out our merchandise at gumshaparshop.com. If the website's down, we're sorry. We're getting it back up. It's fine. <laughs> we're, we're fixing, fixing it. it. <laughs> We've got Dune-themed apparel and a bunch of stuff featuring original artwork, some exclusive designs. And while uh, the merch website we use kind of sucks, <laughs> our designs and other things sure don't. We've made sure of that. So check it out. Great way to support the show if and when it's working. <laughs> Indeed. Now... Here's the thing, folks. You might have missed your chance to email us your question for this episode, but that's okay because we will have more mailbag episodes in the future, and there's actually a planned finale mailbag episode for this very book club. So you have another chance to email us at gomjabarpodcast at gmail.com. We love to get your letters. We love to get your D-strands, and we particularly love to get your electronic letters. They're oh, the most convenient the ones. The best. Always gives me a little thrill. <laughs> and hey, if you're hearing this book club mailbag episode on the public feed, yeah, it's true. This was recorded months ago. All right. So huge if true. Huge it's true. If true. So if you'd like your questions included in future book club mailbag episodes, hey, consider becoming a uh, patron, patreon.com forward slash gamjabar. And you can hear it right when it's happening right when it's coming out. You can be one of those people getting your messages into the book club episodes as they're happening. But of course, as we have in the past and will continue in the future, we will have general mailbag episodes occasionally. You can always get a good question in there if you have one. So don't hesitate to email us other times of the year as well. That's right. Okay. We've made shout out proud. That takes care of housekeeping. So let's now take a short break but don't go anywhere, folks, Indeed. because your questions are coming up, and so are our answers. We'll see you in a minute. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. We hope you enjoyed your break. Let's get into our first email. And our first email today, first up, we're going to be talking about an absolutely S-tier email <laughs> from Gwisat's Haderach patron himself, Matthew yes. Good, about the preacher's discussion with Ferradin on Seleucus Secundus. Remember the back with that hilarious fake mask, right? Yes. And it's an enormous email, so we're going to try and share some of the key points that Matthew made. But I really want to highlight, what a fucking incredible email. Yeah, <laughs> like truly, truly. Genuinely incredible. Okay, let's get into it. This is Matthew Good. Quote, Love the podcast and was just listening to part three of the Children of Dune book club. 
I believe that you slightly missed the boat on the interpretation of the preacher's speech to Faradin. The issue of the paradox of power is not that the more you have, the less you get to wield. It is the thirst of power creates a need for more power. But the more you enjoy the power, the more you are subservient to the whims of those that put you into power, the primal urges of the common man. The ruling needs the support of the ruled, and the need for continuing the rule will depend more and more on the whims of the ruled. Already, <laughs> taking wow. a beat here. Yeah, already, fantastic point, you know. Indeed, yeah. Really, really solid. But then Matthew continues and addresses the preacher's quote, telling Faradin about the strategy of ruling and accounting for minutiae, like the ambitions of a governor's wife. And Matthew has this to say about that portion. Quote, the commentary, I believe, is not a warning to Fraudin that he is being led by the nose, but that good governing is more than the pure use of power. The preacher is attempting to direct Fraudin's learning, that it is more than just telling people what to do. To be a good leader, one must seek to understand your subjects and live for an idea, not just to have power for power's sake. End quote. Wow. Yeah. Matthew, Matthew, Matthew. That's Dope. just a taste, folks. That is a taste, a morsel, some might say, <laughs> of the email that Matthew sent. He goes on to quote some more relevant passages from future books, which we obviously will not be sharing here to avoid spoilers. So that's where we'll leave it for now. But just trust us that the email like goes on for like 10 more paragraphs. Absolutely enormous message. So well-researched quotes from all the books, incredible stuff from Matthew. We love to get those kinds of emails and we want to thank Matthew for the insight and yeah. the amount of work that went into just typing that up and probably researching it. <laughs> yeah. I can say as someone who habitually sends way too long of emails, <laughs> I know how much work it takes to craft something so really dense and impressive. No words wasted. Really fantastic work, Matthew. Thank you. Yeah, definitely. Well, what do you think of Matthew's email, Leo? What do you think of his interpretation of what the preacher is telling Farad in there in that scene on Seleucus Secundus? I mean, it's one of those things. I think Matthew's spot on. I really struggle to now see it any other way than what Matthew was kind of <laughs> outlining. Yeah. I think this is, it's just worth admitting that like doing weekly episodes, we don't always have the time to like really dive into depths of some of these more metaphorical moments in a way that I wish we could. But I think that's also why I'm so appreciative of Matthew's email, because yeah. like clearly Matthew has thought about this, or this has been something that Matthew maybe thought over, or maybe Matthew's just a lot smarter than us. But <laughs> reading through his points and seeing the, the various quotes that he shared, it really was a compelling point. And I found myself totally swayed. I was like, yeah. That's that seems spot on to me. There might be yeah. additional depths. Maybe there are always multiple interpretations of these things. I find myself swayed. I think it makes some really great points. And I think when we were working on that script, this was a portion of the episode that you were kind of handling. And so I'm I'm really curious to hear your thoughts. Did he sway you as well? Are you fully team Matthew Good? How are you feeling <laughs> on on his uh, on what he wrote? 
well, I'm team Edward till I die. So <laughs> no, no to team Matthew. But I actually agree with you, Leo. Like Matthew's email, absolutely incredible. I think he makes a very compelling point. I think his analysis of that scene is spot mm. on. And it's certainly how I will be viewing that scene as well. But as with all things Frank Herbert, as with all things Dune, nothing means just one thing. There are layers and subtext and subtext within subtext, plans within plans. And this is a great interpretation. And while I agree with what Matthew said, I think our interpretation of it stands as well. And in many ways, we made very similar points to Matthew. Like I think in this email, in the section we've just read, his point about the paradox of power is basically describing what I remember I was getting at in that episode as well. Mm, And maybe I wasn't as eloquent as Matthew (laughs) was in his email in the episode, but the point stands that unlimited power as a ruler doesn't exist because as he states, the more power you wield, the more you are subject to the whims of the people that you're ruling. So the ambitions of a lowly governor's wife can be the thing that topples you, right? Like that, that is the paradox that I was describing in the original episode is that the downfall of those who hunger for power is more often than not, not paying attention to that minutia, to the whims of the people they govern. And I think that leads to Matthew's second point, which I think is absolutely spot on, couldn't agree with more. And I have honestly no response to it because it's correct. Like Matthew's second point about the preacher slash Frank, honestly, Defining the differences between a good ruler and a bad ruler as someone who understands their subjects and follows an ideal versus someone who seeks power for power's sake. Right. I love that. That's such a good interpretation. I think we were toying with similar ideas in our discussion as well, but Matthew put it eloquently. He backed it up with quotes on quotes (laughs) on quotes, some of which we can't even share because they're from like future books. Like one was literally from Chapter House, book six, you know? Yeah. So- I love that he did that, and I love that he gave us the opportunity to have this conversation once again and to revisit those ideas. Dune is a work of art, and there are many interpretations of these scenes. All of us can read them in our own ways, and that's okay. And I think the way that Matthew has done them here is pretty incredible. I do envy the fact that he could reach forward into time and pull quotes from future book clubs, how dare he, I too would yeah. love to have the time to like scour through every relevant quote in Chapter House and God Emperor and past books and future books. And <laughs> but alas, the episodes got to get done and we got to record them. So well, we do our best. Even that aside, a lot of our conversations around Children of Dune have to stay within Children of Dune and before. right for spoiler reasons. Yeah. Right. I had that same twinge of like, oh man. Multiple times throughout the first three books, I found myself wanting to talk about something in Children of Dune yeah. while we were like reading <laughs> Messiah or <laughs> while we were reading Dune. And there's that feeling all the time about a lot of these things, especially as we get more and more into the series, as we get into God Emperor of Heretics and Chapter House. So at some point, we probably will have to <laughs> go in and just no holds barred, like, full spoiler, deep conversations about these like minutia moments that happen throughout the books. Yeah, for sure. And that's what our spoiler filled deep dive episodes are for. So we can take all six books in context with the encyclopedia. Yeah. We just have to figure out how to (laughs) format them because normally we talk about like a topic, but 
to talk about a conversation or a theme or, a, you know, it's like we have to abstract yeah. it somehow. Yeah, anyway. Totally. Yeah. Matthew, thank you for sending us into an existential spiral about how to make this podcast. <laughs> we love it. Restructure the whole podcast. <laughs> thank you, Matthew. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Shit. Uh, no. Amazing email. Thank you so much for sharing. And we will explore some of your ideas that you shared in that email and in other emails you've sent us more as we continue to cover ground and can for uh, spoiler sakes. Totally. But yes, thank you. Thanks again. Well, next up, we have an incredible email message from Anthony. Anthony writes, quote, we know Duncan fucks. Yes. <laughs> but to put horns on a man is to make a cuckold of him. The preacher is not referencing Duncan's sexual prowess, but stoking his anger against Alia's allowance to the inner baron by way of the seduction of Javid. More specifically, he exhorts Duncan to take those horns and tells the swordmaster to do what he does best, thus to murder Javid. Wow. And I fucking loved this email because yeah. genuinely, I had no idea that that idiom exists, right? Right. Me he's, neither. He's saying, take your horns. And I'm like, oh, fun Atreides reference there, like a, a member of House Atreides, the bull. You know, I'm like doing this fun high school essay analysis <laughs> of it, totally missing the fact that there's this innuendo here. Yeah. Yeah. So to in referencing Duncan's horns, the preacher, Paul, is drawing clear this cuckolding of Duncan, that his wife is yeah. taking other men to, into her bed against, of course, Duncan's wishes. Incredible insight and something I totally missed. So, Anthony, thank you so much. Right. Thank you so much for teaching us that. I'm going to use that phrase all the time now. <laughs> Bro really put <laughs> horns on his Lexus. Uh, did I use that right? <laughs> God, I really want to put horns on my cereal, if you know what I mean. Because uh, I, yes. <laughs> I don't know what I mean. <laughs> don't know what that, yeah, horns, putting horns on things. Uh, I'll figure it out. Yeah, I think the more I use it, I'll figure it out. Yeah, <laughs> practice makes perfect. <laughs> In regards to the email, I did want to say, I do really like that Anthony pointed out that the phrase from the preacher is in reference to Baron by the way of seduction of Javid, right? I think that's a very mm, yeah. important distinction. There's a subtlety here that Duncan himself perhaps doesn't fully understand because it's not clear to us whether Duncan knows for certain that it's exactly Baron Harkonnen who has taken possession of Alia. Right. He, of course, knows that she has become possessed, but maybe doesn't know that it's the Baron. What he does know, though, is that Alia is sleeping with Javit behind his back. <laughs> right. And so, as Anthony is pointing out here, this is almost a double betrayal, a double cuckolding of Duncan, because she is allowing not one, but two men into her life that aren't Duncan, that aren't right. her husband. Right. On one level, the Baron, and on a physical level, Javid. Right. And I think knowing this puts quite a bit of perspective on those really intense emotional scenes that we've talked about recently in the book club episodes where Duncan has to face Alia, right? Right, yeah. In those scenes where he can't even look her in the eye because the love and trust between them has been betrayed, not once, but twice. And even in those scenes, just the audacity of 
Alia to pretend like nothing is different, to pretend that she's still lovey-dovey with Duncan. Right, right. It, it's brutal. It's brutal. And it, it just makes it so painful when she decides, oh, I think I'm going to have my husband get into a little ornithopter oopsie and die. <laughs> the betrayals on uh. betrayals on betrayals are just painful. And I'm really glad that Anthony pointed out that it is a bit on one level a betrayal to the Baron and also a betrayal to Javid. And it's it's happening on multiple fronts to multiple other men. That aren't Duncan, that aren't the person that she should be confiding in and is married to and presumably in love with. Yeah. And also just how blatantly all this is being called out and how on the table so much of this is. And then for Alia to be like, I hope he hasn't figured it out. <laughs> like when he doesn't come <laughs> back from Solusa Secundus right away, she's like, Did he find out about Javid? It's like, God damn it. She's so yeah. dumb sometimes. I know. Everyone knows about Javid. Everyone knows. Jesus. <laughs> Jessica took one look at him. I was like, Oh, that's weird. He's fucking right. Alia. That's strange. Right. I, I think know. he's sleeping with Alia. Obvious. She's By the like, way he walks. <laughs> Hey, Ganima, look at that guy. She's like, the one having sex with Javier? It's like, no, 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 the one next to him. Oh, the one with the weird hat. Cool. <laughs> exactly. Everyone knows Alia. God Alia's damn like, it. I'm a good secret keeper. <laughs> I, I guess one person, Irulan, probably doesn't know. <laughs> oh, definitely doesn't know. Irulan's definitely. like, God, she must be so lonely without Duncan. <laughs> <laughs> that poor soul. That poor soul. Anthony, thank you so much for sharing that insight and for teaching us something new today wonderful email. Thanks so much for writing it. Put horns on my television. (laughs) (laughs) Next, we have a lovely message from Rachel and Aaron. Hey. Lest we forget Aaron. Of course. Never. Rachel writes, quote, Frank keeps referring to Liet Kynes as the one who imagined and planted the dream of a green Arrakis. But isn't that Pardo? The first mention of Liet in the book is in the first chapter, page five in my copy, with Stilgar wondering if Jessica will order him to fall upon his own knife as the Uma protector of Liet Kynes has been ordered. But Pardo Kynes was the Uma? No? Wasn't Liet named after the Uma protector? You guys are the best! And there's like six (laughs) T's there. I love it. Yeah. Love, Rachel. P.S. Aaron says hi. End quote. Thanks so much for bringing this up, Rachel, because definitely as we get further into the book series, these sorts of things do happen. And sometimes there's a lot to say about them. In this case, I think we wanted to talk about it because it can be a little bit confusing. But let's talk about it for a minute, right? Yeah. So you are correct that Pardo Kynes was referred to as the Uma. I do want to point out that Uma is a Chaksoba word that just means prophet. So right. Right. This is something that could be passed on rather than like a per individual, you know, secret name like Usul, right? Right. And while Pardo, the first Uma, it was the one that set the Fremen onto the path to a green Arrakis, he's not exactly as significant as his son would turn out to be, right? And let's start with Pardo because he is in the appendix at the end of the first book. Right, even ignoring the Dune Encyclopedia for a second. Let's take a look at this quote from the appendix. Quote, The son had been trained to follow the father. The course had been set by this time. The ecological Fremen were aimed along their way. 
Liet Kynes had only to watch and nudge and spy upon the Harkonnens until the day his planet was afflicted by a hero. <laughs> Amazing. And I love that terminology, afflicted by a hero. It's fucking awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Love that last line. That's such a good quote because I think it reinforces that Rachel is absolutely correct, right? Perdo was referred to as the Uma, or at least the first Uma. Liet might have inherited that title. But Pardo was definitely the one that set the Fremen on this path toward a green Arrakis. The appendix makes that very, very clear. And especially in this quote, literally says, Liet Kynes had only to watch, nudge, and spy. Like he wasn't the one with the plan. Right. Pardo was. Liet just continued that plan and saw it to completion, or at least saw it to the next step. So that leads us back to Rachel's question. Why in the book are characters who know Pardo not referencing him and instead talking about Liet. My theory is that this is a totally out of lore reason for this. Sure. Uh, Pardo only appears in a single chapter in the entire six book Dune saga that Frank wrote. And even in that one chapter, he is just a hallucination, memory hallucination that Liet is having as he's dying in the desert. Right. None of that background info about Pardo and the dream of a green Arrakis and how he came across the Fremen and et cetera, et cetera, all his background, none of that is in that chapter in the book. All of that is in the appendices or in the Dune Encyclopedia. And so to me, the obvious question to raise here is how many, what percent of Dune readers, what percent of book readers are also consuming all of the appendices and then going out and getting the encyclopedia and consuming all of that. That right. narrows it down to not very many people. And there's also the extra consideration that a lot of what we talk about on this podcast is from the encyclopedia, which was released in 1984. Children of Dune itself was published in 1976. So there's also almost a decade difference between all of this info we know about Pardo from the encyclopedia and when this book was actually published. So all of that is to say, keeping all of that in mind, I think Frank actually just kind of made a strategic choice here when writing Children of Dune to focus more on Liette rather than Pardo, basically because one of them is a huge character from the first book and the other barely makes an appearance, shows up as a ghost memory one time. And that's for me, it was kind of humbling because it's a reminder that like we all here listening to this podcast and making this podcast are huge Dune fans to the point where we will obsessively read everything in the appendices and we will obsessively read every entry of the encyclopedia and then talk about it for hours on right. mic. Right. That makes us a very small percentage of Dune readers and even Dune fans out there. The vast majority of people probably haven't consumed a single word of the appendix and may not even know the encyclopedia exists. And so I think keeping that in mind, Frank probably was like, well, Liet is the character folks will remember from the books. Pardo is not. And so perhaps that is a reason for why characters keep referring to Liet when they're talking about actions that Pardo took. That's my theory on it. Yeah. But obviously we don't have a confirmation for that because we can't ask Frank himself why he chose to do that. Yeah. I mean, writers make mistakes. It's also possible it was just an oversight. There are long fucking books. Yeah. I will very happily bend over backwards to keep things in canon and like in reverse. <laughs> 
so I was trying to kind of picture, you know, Stilgar, he, to be fair, he witnessed the galactic jihad. His world has expanded from being a siege leader to governor of the planet. He's been busy, folks, and it's been a busy 20 years. Perhaps for him even, it's become more myth than personal memory, right? Like, yeah, yeah. he's crossing names, he's making this mistake. And maybe at this point, there is a sort of gradual erasure of the previous generations where these people who literally set in motion everything we're seeing in many ways, those individuals are being forgotten by time. And the conversations around their machinations are now about their children's or the people who are currently in charge. Very broadly, I stand by that. In this specific instance, it might just be, it might just be, as you pointed out, Frank making a decision because he doesn't want readers to be like, wait, who the fuck is Pardo Kinds? And then like right, spending right. 10 minutes confused and angry that they don't remember the right name or whatever. So yeah, yeah that's, yeah. I don't know where I fall on it. If I thought more about it, maybe I could come on a really strong, right. strong opinion. But right. Well, hey, this is Gam Jabbar. We love a tinfoil hat in lore <laughs> theory explanation justification. So Got there a it lot is. of tinfoil hats. <laughs> so many. <laughs> yeah. Well, in that same email from Rachel, we actually have another question. And I thought this was fantastic. So let's talk about it. Rachel said, also, Aaron, hi, Aaron, said, quote, I keep finding it weird that the Baron never refers to the fact that it was Alia who killed him. In the chapter where Frank describes the day she finally submitted to him, the Baron says, your brother's dead, a failure. And Alia replies, so are you. He answers, true, but with me, it was an accident beyond my designing. This fucking guy. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's like, yeah, slow your roll, girl. All right. <laughs> wow. Calling me dead. Rude. All right. Rachel continues. I know it's extremely nitpicky of me, but it irritates me like sand in my still suit. <laughs> End quote. I love that. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent writing in your email. I really appreciate it. And what an eye for detail. It's right, true. Right. And I think this one actually goes a little bit to the Baron being smart in this moment, right? Yeah. The Baron doesn't want to dwell on the, you know, insignificant detail of getting fucking murdered by a four-year-old. Like that's, <laughs> he's trying to project strength. He's like, listen, I'm the guy you want in your corner. She's like, guy who was murked by a four-year-old. He's like, no, 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 no. It was an accident. I didn't have any agency in dying, all right? right? Right, I have agency now. I can be a help to you. I think this is just him kind of avoiding that topic on purpose. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. You also have to consider the deeply vulnerable state that Ali is in at this moment, right? Right, yeah. Like, the Baron's not about to ruin his chance to emotionally manipulate this person by bringing up the very touchy details of his death. Right. Like notice that the other manipulations he's doing in this quote that Rachel pointed out, your brother's dead a failure. He's calling the messianic emperor of the known universe a failure. <laughs> yeah. Because he knows that that is what Alia fears as well, that her brother led the galaxy astray and now she has inherited that galaxy. He knows what she is thinking. He's inside her head 
And so he's only going to say the right things to manipulate her, right? Right. Like it's easy for him to push those buttons because he knows them. He's in her head. And so he's really drilling down into those fears and insecurities that she's experiencing about things like Paul, about things like the empire, about things like her ability to lead as regent. Yeah. So if he's trying to win her over, like it doesn't behoove him to remind her that, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, she is the one that stuck him with the Atreides Gamjabar when she was just four years old. <laughs> that doesn't make him look great. No, it does not. I think great point all around, but also just a great question. And I yeah. think at the end of the day, Rachel and Aaron, of course, great attention to detail. We love you picking up on this stuff and we love thinking more about it because honestly that moment passed without me thinking too much about it. I was like, okay, sure. Right. But it really feels very in line with the Baron's character and the Baron as an other memory. So it's fun to kind of highlight that and to celebrate, again, how consistent some of these characters are. It's cool. Totally, totally. Thanks for writing in, Rachel. Yeah. And Aaron. <laughs> and Aaron. Aaron, we love you, buddy. <laughs> Probably. I don't know. All right. <laughs> all right. Next, let's finally explain this hashtag devour me joke we've been making all episode. <laughs> we have a lore question about sandworm fornication from Joe. Yeah. And Joe asks simply, <laughs> quote, how do sandworms fuck? End mm. quote. <laughs> Joe, it's a good question that took like way too long to answer, as it turns out. Yeah. No, let's talk about it. Let's talk about how our spicy, thick desert boys yes. come to be. How do they how do they mate? And I want to point out here that the Dune Encyclopedia introduces some ideas on this topic, has a lot on it on like sandworm reproduction cycles that Frank himself never really verified. And in fact, there are some like throwaway lines throughout Frank's books that suggest they are not accurate. So we'll basically answer this question in two ways. First, from the Dune Encyclopedia, okay? So how do sandworms fuck? The encyclopedia tells us that a female sandworm develops an egg sac and digs a nest site. This digging process creates a thumping sound. Hey, this is why sandworms like the thumpers. They're like, oh, it's wow. a lady. It's a lady okay. digging who's mm -hmm. got an egg, egg sack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> hmm, love those. So a male worm attracted by the thumping sound would eat the lady, <laughs> would devour her, part of her. I don't know. It's not exactly clear. Would devour the lady worm. Now, this soon-to-be father worm would go dormant, big meal, has to nap for a period, would excrete the fertilized eggs underneath the sand, and then they it would leave. <laughs> Just like, bye, bye eggs. Later, in this kind of burrowed nesting site, the eggs would hatch, releasing sand trout, these sort of leathery, small creatures, who would gather water, creating spice blows, which would kill a bunch of them because it's an explosion. It's a giant explosion would kill a bunch right. of them. Yeah. Ask Liet Kynes about yeah. it. Liet Kynes has lots of thoughts on spice blows. <laughs> <laughs> At least one of them. Yeah, Lots of thoughts on spice blows. But those of the uh, sand trout that aren't killed by the spice blow, so, you know, not Liet Kynes, <laughs> the eagles, the, the birds that probably <laughs> flew away, the surviving ones would group up over about a thousand years. Power Rangers style, 
to become a juvenile small sandworm. Amazing. And these little worms are genderless. That being said, most of them develop to be sexually female. The uh, dominant theory is that there are only so many male sandworms on the planet because they're like hyper territorial. So they'll just like kill any other sandworms that come along that are male. Yeah. Effectively meaning the thing that triggers juvenile sandworm to become a male sandworm and to grow to be a male sandworm is unknown. It's like maybe it's a ecological thing because they're not exactly animals. There's so much. There's so much in that chapter about it. I even point <laughs> out that like, yeah, so every spice blow is potentially the beginning of the thousand year process of a new baby worm. But also they've only been on the planet for so long. It's so much. It's so much. And a lot of that is stuff that doesn't exactly vibe with what Frank says, right? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the Dune Encyclopedia, per usual, goes into extreme detail yeah. and expands on what Frank has said. But Frank's own words only confirm a part of what the Dune Encyclopedia says. So basically what we can gather from Frank's books is that the sand trout do gather around water where it occurs deep underground. And after destroying that water, they cause a spice blow. So all of that checks out. Right. The surviving sand trout do then gather together and morph into a single young worm. So that's true as well. Right. But that is the extent of the confirmation we have of the sandworm cycle from Frank's own words. Right. What the Dune Encyclopedia says about the mama worm getting eaten and the egg and the papa worm going dormant, releasing the egg, all of that. That is the Dune Encyclopedia's expansion on the foundation that Frank right. built. But we do know for certain that sand trout, water, spice blow, Power Ranger morph <laughs> together into a into a single worm. Right, right. All of that is confirmed in the sandworm cycle. The mama papa fucking part, that's Dune Encyclopedia. Frank didn't explain exactly how they fucked. Right. So there you have it, Joe. Basically, according to Frank, they don't fuck. <laughs> yeah, they're, they <laughs> never get laid. And I was going to make a joke about like, oh yeah, they're like such and such character. But then I realized that a shocking majority of Dune characters are confirmed getting laid. <laughs> like yeah, so yeah. many of them. We make the joke all the time, but I was literally like, oh, who could I bag on? And it's like, God, it's either main characters who are definitely getting laid or side characters who are the people banging the main characters. <laughs> like, Yeah, totally. It's wild. The only person that comes to mind is Erlon, our virgin queen. That's true. Hey, that's a good point. But I don't, I don't want to like dig on her, you know, like she's so great. Yeah, she was a virgin by choice. That It was a power move. She could. We talked She about could it. get it. Folks, make no mistake. She chooses not to. Make she no mistake. owns her power. It's amazing. She's great. We stand her. She's great. Truly. Thank you, Joe, for that great question about sandworm biology and reproduction. That's what the encyclopedia has to say about it. That's what Frank had to say about it. And that's what we have to say about it. <laughs> Let it be written, let it be done. <laughs> let it be written, let it be done. Now you know how to attract sexually <laughs> a male sandworm in the Dune Encyclopedia. Well, hashtag devour us. Hashtag devour us. Yeah, now you can re-listen to the first 10 minutes of this episode and, and understand. Right, it'll be way funnier, we promise. I, I hope. <laughs> I hope it's <laughs> worth something. Well, with those first questions out of the way, we're going to take a quick break. But stick around. 
after we're back, we're going to get into some more listener messages. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back, folks. Let's continue diving into our messages and get to the second half of our book club episode. Our guy Joe from before the break actually had another question for us. In that same email, Joe continued and asked us a speculative question, which we always love getting because this <laughs> is when we get to get real tin hatty. Yeah. Here's what he wrote. Quote, in your mind, Canon, how would Dune Messiah onward go if Frank did follow the Joseph Campbell formula? Would the assassination plan against Paul have worked? End quote. So fascinating question, Joe. <laughs> Genuinely really interesting to think about sent me down a two, like two and a half hour, three hour rabbit hole of just <laughs> research. And I ended up reading like some grad papers from different doctoral theses and things. Incredible. It was nuts. But we have a totally, probably unsatisfying answer for you. Before we get to that, before we disappoint Joe, we have to make sure <laughs> you all know enough to also be disappointed. Okay? Right, right, right. We believe in equal disappointment here at Gondor. <laughs> so, for those of you who don't know, within Joe's question, Joseph Campbell is famous for his writing, but also his kind of theory crafting on narrative archetypes. And he wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, which explores in part this kind of archetypal hero and their journey, also known as the hero's journey. And this is mm -hmm. a diagram you can look up. There are varying complexities of it where sometimes it's three stages. Sometimes it's like 16 distinct stages. And the idea is to sort of key to a broader term that Joseph Campbell uses, which is the monomyth, right? The right. idea that every ancient myth basically shares this core narrative element and that those patterns, those kind of core narrative elements, are still alive and abundant in modern storytelling. So if you look up like monomyth in Hollywood, you'll see people like saying, this is how the Matrix is exactly the hero's journey. Or like, this is how Lord of the Rings, you know, everything you can imagine, people have talked about. Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. And probably it's best summarized as hero who faces adversity in an adventure, overcomes that challenge in a moment of crisis or being opposed, and then finally returns home changed in some way, which <laughs> even saying that, yeah, that's most stories. Right. Luke Skywalker, you can apply this <laughs> to any, any hero. Like the hero's journey is something I think most people are aware of yeah, and could yeah. easily recognize in their favorite stories. Yeah. And I wanted to do Joe's question justice and kind of jump into it and answer it in a comprehensive way. And first, uh -huh. that began with like, what have other people said about this? Because I haven't 
I, I got my degree in art. As I've covered, it's going great. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> haven't had a chance to really think about the monomyth in applying it toward known things that I'm familiar with. So I was like, okay, what have people said about this? And Joe, you might know this already, but for those of you who don't, there are a number of books out there that explore Frank's story and how it does or doesn't engage with Joseph Campbell's monomyth. To even just give you an example of how focused some of these conversations are, uh, an author named Donald Palumbo wrote a book called Chaos Theory, Asimov's Foundations and Robots and Herbert's Dune, The Fractal Aesthetic of Epic Science Fiction. And if that wow. sounds convoluted, get a load of this synopsis. This is a piece of the oh, synopsis. No. Quote, this book examines Herbert's Dune series and Asimov's Foundation trilogy and robot stories from the perspective of chaos theory to elucidate the structure of their <laughs> works. Chaos theory is the study of orderly patterns in turbulent, dynamic, and erratic systems. The order of these systems stems from the interdependence of numerous interlocking events or components. These may take the form of fractal structures in which similar but not necessarily identical structures are replicated across the same scale and increasingly smaller scales. End quote. Uh-huh. Woo! That's a, <laughs> that's a series of sentences. And apparently Palumbo <laughs> makes the point in his book that the monomyth is inherently fractal, just like the very nature of the monomyth is, is one of fractal patterns, but spends part of the book exploring that idea. Big side note here, because I almost bought a couple of Palumbo's books, and then I was looking at reviews of Palumbo's books, and it does seem as though this author, Donald Palumbo, had some ideas that he wanted to write about and then maybe broadly simplified some of Frank's works to fit his theories to maybe mm. cash in on the popularity of Dune. And I was seeing this as a pattern... <laughs> of other, like there's a book that someone shared in the Discord just a few days ago talking about, yeah, this like collection of essays on Frank Herbert's Dune that's being sold as a book. But man, it's like some of these are not even remotely about Dune. <laughs> they're like, they're just about, I don't know, hero to villain arcs or whatever. And then it's like this effort to twist it to fit. Anyway, wanted to put that caveat there as a warning for anybody who's about to drop money on Palumbo's books. Might be yeah. a little bit of a stretch. With all of that out of the way, let's disappoint Joe now, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Joe's been satisfied for too long, <laughs> like a <laughs> recently fed sandworm in a recently dug pit. Yes. I am not sure that Frank's story doesn't engage the monomyth. Ooh. And if nothing else, I think you could make a very strong argument, especially Dune and Dune Messiah, this journey of Paul being very much fitting into that kind of archetype. Does it deviate from it? Totally. Could you argue the other way? I think you could. But it certainly toys with some of those ideas and some of those stories. To your question, Joe, about whether or not the assassination attempt would have succeeded, I think by definition, if he was using the monomyth, the hero returns home unchanged or changed. I don't think dead is changed. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think, I think, Paul would survive, but would come out away from that in some profound changed way, which he does. Yeah. He's fucking blinded and now a god right. kind of fully ascended to his godhood. But I also wanted to point out, we haven't finished Children of Dune yet. 
And the preacher's still bumbling around, being old Paul. So I think there's more to say about that. And as I continue to kind of look at this question, I started getting the sense that maybe this would be a good full episode, like a good oh yeah, broad look is like maybe Paul's life beginning, middle and end, and whether or not it engages with, like, is he one of the thousand faces of the hero, right? So anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious to hear what you all think, listeners out there. Do you think Joseph Campbell's pattern archetype fits Paul and fits Dune as a, as a work of art? And we'll probably put a pin in this for now, but email us if you had any thoughts, if you had any feelings as I was talking about all this. And if you have some hot takes, maybe we'll do like a hybrid episode, which is hybrid, like half us saying something and then half just emails about this interesting topic. Anyway, so sorry, Joe. I think it does, maybe, but who, maybe it doesn't. <laughs> right. M- maybe so, and maybe not so. <laughs> TLDR. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Leo, that this is definitely a topic that needs its own episode, right? Like, this is probably a topic that needs a couple of weeks of research on our part. And maybe we bite the bullet and read those Palumbo books, and it requires mm-hmm. quite the deep dive to get into this deeply fascinating conversation. We have neither the time nor the space for it here on a mailbag, but we wanted to bring it up because it's just so fascinating. This is a question that's been explored in Dune by a lot of folks out there. And as much as Joe wants our take on it, I think for now, all we can say is it's something we'll have to explore in the future. We need more time to do our research and do it justice right? and provide a conversation that adds to the discussion. Right. Yeah. Well, again, we want to do, it's a great question. I wanted to point this stuff out there. There's a lot of reading out there if you're interested by these things. And there are videos and YouTube videos already on the subject, but we want to do justice. So yeah, we'll, uh, we do. we'll come back to it. For sure. All right. Next up, we have a quick question from Nathan. Quote, could you do a quick rundown of all the Dune TV and movie projects currently in the works? Is it just <laughs> Dune Part 2 and The Sisterhood? What do we know about the sisterhood as far as cast, debut date, etc.? End quote. Nathan. Oh, Nathan. <laughs> Thank you, Nathan. Yeah. Yes. I want to talk about this stuff. For sure. I'm glad we get to go over this because there has been some news recently about all the Dune projects in the works. And it's actually been almost a whole year since we did our Future of Dune episode in which we talked about many of the Dune projects over the next couple of years that have been announced or rumored right. that we're excited for. True. So it's a good time for a little update on how some of those projects are going. Yeah. So first up, let's talk about part two. Denis Villeneuve, Dune part two. As of an announcement on, it looks like October 11th. <laughs> Jeez, the <laughs> when, day before we're recording this? <laughs> that's yesterday. Yeah. Amazing. The Dune sequel is opening on November 3rd, 2023. So wow. it was initially going to be like October 23rd, and then it got pushed back to November 17th, but then it's being pushed forward by two whole weeks. Thank Hell you for yeah. two weeks. Hell yeah. Two weeks sooner. Two weeks less waiting. And I'm seeing this on HollywoodReporter.com, although I'm sure this spicy news will be hitting a few platforms in the coming days. But 
That's when we can expect it right now, November 3rd, 2023. And regarding like more information about it, we have no real reason to think it's going to cover anything more than the remaining portion of this first book. There have been some recent casting news, right? If you aren't fully up to date, Austin Butler, who was in the Elvis movie, is going to be Fade Rautha Harkonnen. Florence Pugh, hey, lovely actress, wonderful actress. It's going to be Princess Irulan. <laughs> cool. I saw, Did you Amazing. see that thing where it was like the leaked script for Irulan's character and it was just a blank page? <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> they were like, savage. guys, huge news. They leaked the page of her, her dialogue. <laughs> Damn. Nothing I mean, it. get that bag, Florence Pugh. <laughs> yeah, right? And you have to hang out with the fucking incredibly hot cast of Doom. Yeah. <laughs> I'm down. I'll say nothing on camera. It's great. Right. I'll play Princess Irulan. Come on, give me the role. <laughs> <laughs> we have Leia Seydoux as Margot Fenring. Phenomenal. Loved her in French Dispatch. She was great. And also Death Stranding, right? Video game fans. Yep. We have Sohaila Yakub. Is that how you say that name? As, I did not know. That was a good I'm not sure. I think that's how you say it. I'm so sorry if that's not how you say it. Should have looked it up. My bad. But playing Shishakli. And Shishakli, I believe, again, correct me if I'm wrong, was the Fremen who handed Paul his maker hooks for his yep. like worm ride. That's right. And that's fucking it. Like ended up <laughs> I think they end up being a Fadakan, but like even looking for the name in the books, doing word searches, <laughs> like they don't do very much. So I was like, why is this news? It's exciting. New person joining the cast. And yeah, maybe they'll be consolidating roles. So it will be a larger role. Right. And of course, the news that shook the internet, Shaddam, the fourth Carino, will be played by none other than Christopher Walken. And yeah. it's, I'm very excited, actually, because there have been, there are some great movies out there where he plays more serious characters. And he's fantastic. He's a great actor. So yeah. Yeah. Should be wonderful. And I'll also point out that we know as of some recent reporting that the movie is in full production, filming in the places we've seen before, Budapest, Abu Dhabi, and Jordan, but also wanted to point out they were filming in Italy, which is a new location that was not used for the first part of the movie. I'm personally polling that this is going to be Kaiten. I think this is going to be the uh, Galactic Imperial Chitin. That's my that's my theory. I think uh, I like that Italy would be good for that. And then finally, on the topic of Dune Part Two, I wanted to point out that although we haven't confirmed, we haven't gotten confirmation from anybody that there will be a Dune Part Three or like Dune Messiah adaptation. A number of people in the production of Part One were like Villeneuve would not have taken this deal if he wasn't guaranteed three movies. And Villeneuve has said, if he gets a part two, this was prior to part two being confirmed. He said, if I get a part two, what's next after that? Messiah. And then after that, I want to work on other projects. So it does seem like he will likely aim for a total of three films to tell through the end of Messiah. And although that's not confirmed yet, it seems pretty likely, fingers crossed, Knock on wood. Yeah. Hopefully we get that. I would love that. Give me that Villeneuve trilogy. That would Indeed. be amazing. I want to see Edric. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for real. 
and the stone burner scene. Are you fucking kidding me? That'd be so oh, crazy. Oh God. And Timothy Chalamet with burnt out eye sockets <laughs> flying an ornithopter. Can you Fuck. imagine anything hotter? Ugh. I love everything about him except those gross eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, the biggest turn off his eyes. Like, uh, I just want him to if have he, if, pits. If we, if we could just like stone burn them or something, he'd be perfect. <laughs> That's what I've always said. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's quickly also talk about the Sisterhood series right. because there is an HBO series in the works. And here's a quick summary of what we know about it. The series will take place 10,000 years before Paul Atreides. So it is very much a prequel series. Indeed. And it will follow Vela and Tula Harkonnen, who are two sisters that apparently play a large part in establishing the Bene Gesserit sisterhood. Right. So we're traveling all the way to 10,000 years ago, presumably when the sisterhood started in the show's timeline. Yeah. it. I'm a little unclear because we've talked about how the sisterhood has roots back on old Terra, which is yeah, on Earth <laughs> 20,000 years before that. But this is, yeah. to be very clear, those are characters from Brian Herbert's Sisterhood of Dune novel. And yeah. so it is pretty safe to say they're going to be using some of Brian's timeline things for what that's right. worth. <laughs> for what that's worth. Right. And in fact, Brian is involved in this production as an executive producer. So... <laughs> Take, Take that, that yeah. as you will. There are also like 12 executive producers and Villeneuve is credited as one of them. So <laughs> who the fuck knows? That's right. a right. little crazy. Yeah. Now, we did recently get confirmation on who will play these two sisters. Emily Watson and Shirley Henderson will star in these roles. And I'm sure we'll get more casting announcements as production kicks into high gear in the coming months. The right. show has very much been sort of stuck in pre-production hell, which I wanted to briefly touch on as well, because it is yeah. important to acknowledge that the show has had a bit of a tumultuous production, at least from the outside. Of course, right. we don't know what's happening on the inside. But it was originally announced back in June 2019 and was presumably planned for release around Dune Part 1. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to serve as like a prequel to Dune or come out shortly after. And obviously that timing didn't play out. And obviously the pandemic is to blame for most of that. Right. The pandemic played a huge role in delays for the Dune movie itself too, of course. Right. But it's clear it has affected the production of the HBO show as well. Right. Beyond the pandemic though, there have been a couple of other minor red flags here and there throughout the years as this show has been in pre-production. Sure. We first found out that while Denny was supposed to direct the first episode, he pulled out of that responsibility because he claimed he was like busy with some movie or something, whatever. It sounds like a bullshit excuse to me. <laughs> sure. So the first two episodes will now be directed by John Rank, who, to be fair, seems like a guy who knows what he's doing because he has won an Emmy for directing Chernobyl, which is a show I oh, haven't watched, but I hear is incredible. so good. It's also dark and heavy. Which, okay, to be okay. fair, I think is also in line with like Villeneuve, like the cinematic universe that Villeneuve is establishing. Nice. Well, that's good to know. I mean, it, it at least as far as directing goes, it seems like the show is still in good hands. But also, to be fair, directors have less sway on TV productions than they do on films. It's that's kind true. of a slightly yeah. different role in a TV production. 
he'll be responsible for like setting the tone and atmosphere and aesthetic of the show. Right. And probably not have too much editorial control. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Johan Rank will be the one who will be directing the first two episodes of the HBO show. Now, something else we learned a while back is that there was a showrunner swap as well pretty early on in pre-production. Originally, John Spates was supposed to be the showrunner, but he then backed out in 2019 to go help Denny write the films. He's credited as co-writer on part one and presumably will be working on part two as well. Right. So he has been replaced by Diane Ademujan, who will act as showrunner. And she is known for her work on Empire and Haunting of Bly Manor. So she will be helming this production and has been for the last couple of years since 2019. Now, none of these like production swaps are totally out of the ordinary. This happens on other shows as well, right? on other productions as well, both movie and television. So they're not necessarily like huge red flags, but I think personally, I am still remaining more cautious than optimistic about the show until we perhaps get more casting announcements and until we see a trailer and until we have a better sense of what the show may or may not be. I'll always consume Dune content. Right. I'll always try to enjoy it. I'll always come into it with a deep bias <laughs> to like yeah, it. Yeah. But I think considering some of the director, showrunner swaps, some of the pre-production red flags that are seemingly there, and the amount of time the show's in been in pre-production, which in and of itself is a red flag, because that means there's a lot of back and forth happening on decision making. Right. I'm kind of in a wait and see approach with the HBO show. Yeah. I also want to, you know, Sisterhood was one of the books of Brian's that I, knowing that the HBO show was coming, like tried to kind of get through and really fell out of listening to because I was listening to the audiobook and was yep. not super enjoying it. But I think we probably should. I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence. Let us know either in Discord or send us an email. Come to our podcast at gmail.com. If you would want us to do a like mini book club series for Sisterhood before the show comes out. Because I think I will read it before and maybe we'll do an episode of like things you need to know before you watch it. Something like yeah, that feels, sure. feels appropriate. But uh, I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence. Maybe it'll be good to go in with just blank expectations. But maybe <laughs> reading the book and being like, wow, that's a bunch of stupid shit. And then to see the show and not have all that stupid shit in it, oh my God, that might be a great experience, right? Like, right. I don't know. Maybe set the bar low by reading the book. <laughs> 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 or, or leave the bar high by, uh, by not. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, we'll have to come to that decision next is when we do. Uh, maybe I'll make, just make a decision in the moment. I'll read the book and decide from there. Because <laughs> yeah. I have to read the book before the show comes out. I can't not. Right, right. Well, Nathan, there's a brief synopsis of the two big productions to look forward to, Dune Part 2 and the HBO Sisterhood show. Obviously, there are smaller things that are always coming out, board games, comic books. There's the video game. Adaptations. Yeah. There's a video game, Dune Spice Wars. Leo, you and I have both played the early access. There's plenty of Dune content out there if you want to dive in. There's also the teaser trailer. The MMO game. Dune Awakening. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. So there's plenty out there for folks who want to dive into the Dune fandom. We've said it before. We'll say it again. No better time to be a Dune fan or to become a Dune fan. 
plenty of room on this bandwagon. <laughs> Hop the fuck yeah. in, folks. Drag your friends and family. <laughs> Everyone you know. Well, let's get to wrapping up this episode with a kind of fun off-topic question from Jamie. Jamie wrote to us and said, quote, I mentioned previously that I was going to read Guards Guards, and I did start. It's super funny. I'm loving it. But then I stumbled onto a new sci-fi series called Wool, otherwise known as the Silo Saga. I'm blowing through it, and it's awesome. Are you familiar with it? And have you accidentally stumbled upon a new series by complete happenstance? End quote. Oh, man, Jamie. First of all, I love yep. a book recommendation. Dear listeners, never stop sending us those. Some of you do that regularly, and I love it. I'm just, my to-read list <laughs> yeah. is getting so long. To answer Jamie's question specifically, no, I don't know what wool is, and I've never heard of the Silo Saga, but you can <laughs> bet your ass I'm going to look yeah. it up right after this recording. What I will say about the other question about accidentally stumbling upon new series, this is something I actually have a lot of feelings about because it makes me kind of sad, yeah. truthfully speaking. As a kid, I used to just randomly find books all the time, constantly. That was like the only way I was finding books. And I was an avid reader as a child. The library was my favorite place growing up and to some extent still is. It's my happy place. My parents would just take me to the library all the time, every week, every couple of weeks, and I would just randomly pick a book off the shelf, sometimes based only off the cover or if the title had the word dragon in it or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And nothing else. That was my criteria for, yep, I'm going to read this 800 <laughs> fucking page book just because the yeah. cover is red. I cannot imagine doing that now, right? Like in the internet age, in this connected age, in this age of right. book talk, I cannot possibly imagine just randomly going somewhere and randomly picking a book and choosing to read the whole thing. Maybe folks like Jamie still do this out there, but for me, the internet has absolutely ruined the magic of randomly stumbling across a book. Like I now constantly have to look up reviews and ratings and scour through bestseller lists and recommendation lists, Right, right. blah, blah, blah. You know, I have to do all of that. I will say on one level, of course, this has helped me find some incredible books that I maybe never would have stumbled on myself. It's helped me expand my palette into genres I've ignored for many years because as a kid, I basically just went to the sci-fi section of the library <laughs> right. and never left. On the other hand, I've completely lost out on that original childhood magic of just finding a book and falling so deeply in love with it or stopping by a local bookstore in a random city and just picking something incredible out and having that memory attached to that bookstore forever. You know, This is where I found the Pendragon book in Chicago right, 2012 right. or whatever. I don't have that experience anymore. And it does make me kind of sad. I miss the magic of stumbling upon a book that it becomes an obsession. Dune, for one, was that. As a kid, I stumbled upon Dune randomly, and here we are, yeah. you know, 15 years later, talking about <laughs> it on a podcast. So that that's my sort of long-winded, deeply personal answer to that question is no. I don't randomly stumble on things anymore, right. but I wish I did. Yeah. I'm curious how Jamie's questions landed for you though, Leo. 
Do you still do that? Do you still got <laughs> no, some the of magic, that magic died. Uh, magic's dead. Super dead. Uh, dead and <laughs> oh, <gone no. laughs> over a decade ago. No. no. Yeah. I, so I haven't heard of, of wool. I've already forgotten. Wool. Yeah. No, I got it right. <laughs> haven't heard of wool. Uh, and uh, I will look into it because, yeah, like you said, Abu, always into book recommendations. And I think the other thing that happens is like I used to peruse bookstores and the school library and the city library and like I would do that to find books because I didn't necessarily have like an active social group of people who knew the kind of books that I liked you know and yeah I think it's a blessing and a curse that at any given moment I could say to a friend hey what do you recommend that you think I'll like and probably one of my favorite books of all time right like wow yeah I mean, it's just, it's just like that's the, especially, you know, I've got some friends from uh, middle school and high school who I've known for so long that they could say, yeah, I think you'll like this. You might think this one's too slow or like whatever. This one's too smart for you, idiot, you know, or whatever. But I think <laughs> I haven't really had the opportunity to or I haven't really felt the need to like go find a gem in the rough. You know, I also as I've gotten older, I've read more and more really shitty books that feel like a waste of time. So I feel more the consequence of you pick up that beautiful dragon book with the red cover. Yeah, yep. You pay whatever $14 that I had to work for now because I'm an adult who makes money. Right. And then it's a right. shit book. And I'm like, fuck, so look this up on the internet or ask a I friend. know. It's, you know, I think that that contributes to that feeling of discovery fading out a little bit. I also will admit that like the last 10 years, I've really struggled to have leisure time for reading because I am just so busy. But I will say, I think this was 2015, uh, 2014, 2015. I went into a local bookstore, like a mom and pop book bookstore near where I was working in Manhattan. Uh -huh. And I asked the shop fellow, I was like, hey, recommend a book, sir. <laughs> Fiction, novel, go. And it, I had to like talk him into it because obviously it's the worst thing in the world. You know, for a fact that people will do that and then be like, that book sucks and I hold you accountable for it. So didn't want to, but I convinced him through charisma or something. I was like, show nice. me. Thanks. It's one, once in a lifetime <laughs> thing for me. <laughs> but uh, he showed me this novel, Buddha's Little Finger by Victor Pelevin. And it was a wild ride. I super loved it. Buddhist philosophy meets the Bolshevik Russian Revolution. <laughs> Very strange. Wow. Uh, but a really fun novel. And I remember that moment fondly because it's kind of what I think the heart of your question's about. That feeling of spontaneity and that feeling of a chance discovery. This wasn't something I researched deeply. It wasn't some known recommendation from a friend. It was just right. a human-to-human -human connection or a chance decision to go through with asking that led to uh, finding a really great book that I super enjoyed. Yeah. But again, like you, Abu, long-winded answer. Basically, no. <laughs> Could have said, nope. <laughs> Thanks for the question. No, 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 nope, nope, Jamie. Right. No, 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 no. But hey, yeah. I think something to aspire to, hopefully one day, you know, move to a little town, have some spare hours to peruse bookstores and discover new series. That's the hope. That's the hope after all. That's the hope. That's the hope. Thanks for the great question, Jamie. Thanks for letting us geek out and share some of our book, book thoughts. Thoughts. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> and yeah, 
that's our episode. She long. <laughs> up so long. We always talk for such a long time. It's because we answer a simple question about books that should be just no <laughs> with yeah. deeply personal 15 minute responses. Like, have you seen that movie? <laughs> no, but when I was a child, uh, I often found myself. <laughs> That's our brand, That's baby. That's our brand, baby. <laughs> well, let's wrap up this mailbag yes. with a reminder. We are so close to finishing this book, and it's <laughs> yeah. going to be a wild ride. For the next book club episode, dear listener, make sure that you have read up to page 500 in the paperback copy, or if you have a different edition, read to the chapter that ends on this sentence. Quote, another time she agreed. <laughs> End quote. POV, trying to make plans with Leo. Uh, another time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, another time. Okay, yeah. No, no, for sure. No, we want to. We really yeah. want to. But uh, yeah, another time. Right. Another just... <laughs> right, right. So either read up to page 500 or just text Leo. <laughs> I, either way, you should be all set for the next book. Club. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, what was the sentence she said? Another time. Okay, cool. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic. So help spread the word of Muad'Dib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lore Party Podcast Network on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, whoever controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path.